Oh, friend, indeed, the greatest truth that we can declare as Christians is that Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. Praise be to God for that truth. Friends, I wonder if someone asked you, what is Christianity about? I wonder how would you answer that question? And I wonder something else. Could you answer that question in two sentences? Only two sentences. Those of you who um, have gone through our membership process know that part of the membership interview uh, to become a member in this congregation, there's this question that we simply put out, uh, what is the gospel? And then I give a qualifier, and I say, could you answer that question in 60 seconds or less? Well, this morning I have a, a slightly different question, but in the same direction. What is Christianity about? And could you answer that question in two sentences? What would those sentences be? Well, this morning, if you would try to think about how you would answer the question, what is Christianity about, and answer it in two, question, in two sentences, the passage we will read this morning are the two sentences that would answer that question. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Titus. Uh, chapter 3, I'll be reading from verse 3 to verse 7. Uh, you may find this passage in the Pew Bibles. If you did not bring a Bible with you, we encourage you to, to grab one of the black Bibles in, a, in your pews. Uh, you may find this passage on page number uh, 998. And if you don't own a Bible or if you don't have an ESV Bible, we'd love for you to have the Bible provided in the chair in front of you. Take it home. We'd love for you to read it. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning as we are making our way through the book of Titus. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. This morning, these are the two sentences we read for us from God's word. Let's uh, read, let's uh, come to the Lord with prayer, asking God to bless the proclamation of the word for our hearts. Would you bow with me in prayer? Oh God, we thank you that you have appeared to us. You have revealed yourself to us. You have shown us who we are, and you have shown us the way you have rescued us. 
Father, we pray that as we approach your word, we pray that you would speak to our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that this word would be powerful and effective in our hearts so that Christ would be exalted, so that we might be drawn to you, so that you might bring eternal life to our souls, even today. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Two sentences that answer the question, what is Christianity about? These two sentences, in one way, would be a summary of let's look at our salvation. If we were to think about the message of, of Christianity, it is about God who provided a way of salvation for sinners like you and I. Friends, this morning we want to take a closer look at this salvation. Before we look in this text, before we go into it, it will be helpful to remember uh, what we have covered so far in the book of Titus and how these two particular sentences function in the larger context. For the past few weeks, as we have gone through uh, paragraph by paragraph in the book of Titus, we noticed that Titus had a lot of specific instructions about godly living. And these specific instructions related to various kinds of people in their different stages of life, and also uh, related to how we, uh, we respond to others, whether they are close to us, whether they are part of the church family, or whether they are outside the faith. Last week, we considered closely that godly living matters, and Paul said to Titus in chapter 2, verse 15, that, he should, that Titus should teach these instructions uh, with clear declaration, with exhortation, and with rebuke. And he should do all these with authority. We looked at the reality that God's instructions for us are authoritative. Then we also looked at specific instructions of how we should live in a godly way towards outsiders. And we saw seven specific instructions that we should look carefully and, and examine of how we should live towards outsiders. In the passage we have today, that we read today, verses 3 to 7, Paul gives us the biblical reason why we should live differently. Listen to how Paul builds his case. If we were to review last week's verses, um, verses 1 and 2 from chapter 3, Paul says to Titus, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to, be sh and to show perfect courtesy to all, toward all people. The question might be, why? Why should we live this way? Why should we pursue this godly living? And the answer is given to us in verses 3, 4, Five, six, and seven. The answer starts in verse three with the word "for." Do you notice how verse three begins? For it, it, it's, it's, this word could also be understood in a causative way, meaning a because. Here's why you need to live in the way I've described in, in verses one and two. Because once you were this way, and then in verse four we give we get. We get a but. Look at verse 4, how verse 4 begins. It begins with the word but. 
Yeah, you used to live this way, verse 3. You used to be this way, but now something happened. And what happened? Verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 describe to us, God saved us. God saved us from our way of sin. As one commentator said, these verses give us the gospel in capsule form. In other words, Paul clarifies the truth of God's salvation and how that salvation has applied to us, to our own lives. Friends, as we look closely at the truth of God's salvation, we can pick out from these verses six major points. Now, we will only unpack three of them today. And if the Lord allows us to gather again next Sunday, we will continue to look at the last three points. But we want to look this week and next week to take a close look at our salvation. Take a close look at our salvation. Why? Because Paul uses this reminder, this truth about our salvation as a motivation why we should live a godly life both towards those inside the church and also towards those outside the church. So let's consider and let's look at a close look, a close view at our salvation. Three points we want to look at this morning. The first one is consider what you were formerly. Consider what you were formerly. Paul begins reminding us of the gospel by appealing to our own sinful state prior to our experience of salvation. Look at verse 3. Four, 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 four. Because we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Friends, some of you might be looking at these descriptions and say, wow, that's interesting. I'm not sure if I considered myself this way. These descriptions are like an x-ray of our spiritual state before God when we were still not saved. Humanly speaking, if we consider our human evaluations, what the eye can see humanly no one in the right mind would evaluate himself through these descriptions. But these descriptions become apparent as rightly describing us when we compare ourselves with God. In light of His examination of our inner life, this picture is accurate. Now, friends, we know of our sinfulness not merely by experience, but by the fact that God reveals our sinfulness to us. It's not about whether or not we feel sinful. It's about how God sees us. And the only way for us to get a sense of our sinfulness is by first accepting God's revelation, God's assessment of our sinful state. Friends, I wonder if you realize that it takes faith to believe that we are this way in the sight of God. By our own assessment, 
We may not feel this way about ourselves. We may feel good about ourselves. We may feel that we are good citizens or we are good people. Yeah, we may make a mistake here and there. We have our weaknesses that we struggle with. But we are good people. So we think. The question is, do we accept God's assessment of ourselves? Do we accept God's assessment of our own state? Or do we prefer our own view, our own assessment? Do we trust God's assessment of us as being more comprehensive and more accurate than our own view of ourselves? Paul describes our life prior to salvation by giving us seven descriptions. Let's look at each of these descriptions. And you may find yourself in different spots in this, in this list of descriptions. First, first description is foolish. We once, we ourselves were once foolish. Now, don't think of foolishness as uh, intellectual skill. This is not about intellectual abilities. People can be very smart, humanly speaking, and yet lack the basics of understanding the ways of God and understanding the wisdom of God. Foolishness in the Bible often refers to lacking spiritual understanding, being ignorant of the ways of God, or simply outright rejecting Him. All of this can fall under the description of being foolish. In 1 Corinthians 3.19, Paul says, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. In other words, the wisdom of this world fails to understand God and His ways. And this is how we have been before we were saved. Foolish. Second description, disobedient. When we lack spiritual understanding, we live a life of disobedience towards God. It is also possible that some may have been exposed mentally to the ways of God, especially those who grew up in the church from a very young age and have conformed, at least outwardly, to a behavior that looked like following the ways of God. We may know what requires, what God requires, yet we can live only with an external obedience while internally our hearts don't really embrace the ways of God. We can be so-called externally obedient while internally we harbor and have and harness attitudes of rebellion, motivations and thoughts that are this, uh, opposite of what God calls us to have. It is very possible for this external religion to hide an internal disobedience. We may try to follow God but follow Him on our own terms. I love how Calvin said on this, it is faith alone that truly obeys God. It is faith alone that truly obeys God. So Paul rightly describes our life before conversion as being characterized by obedience, I'm sorry, by disobedience, particularly in our relationship to God. Another description is let us stray. This description can mean two things. On one side, it means you're going in the wrong direction. Let us stray. 
But the other part of this description is being deceived. And, and both of them are true of our state before knowing Christ. Not only were we going in a wrong direction, but we were deceived about it. We thought we were going in a right direction. It's not enough that we went in the wrong direction. We actually thought we were going in the right direction. That's part of being deceived. What's wrong in God's eyes? We thought was good for us. Deception, dear friends, is the currency of the kingdom of darkness. And our existence before coming to Christ can be described in this way. Being deceived and being led astray in our deception. Now, the fruit of being deceived manifests in us in a number of ways. The next descriptions, of le- the, the, the rest of the descriptions in verse 3 talk about the way in which our foolishness, our disobedience, and our self-deception uh, manifest in our lives. Here's the next description. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. The word passion sometimes is used in the Bible in a neutral way, in a neutral sense, without any negative uh, meaning. But most of the time, this word is used in the Bible in a negative way, referring to evil desires, referring to sinful cravings, referring to pursuing that which God forbids. And pursuing sinful passions brings pleasure. No doubt about it. Pursuing sinful desires brings pleasure. That's why we pursue it. That's why we have them. These passions, though, these desires, even though they might feel good, being pleasureful, they are damaging to us. In this way, they enslave us. Yeah, they feel great. Otherwise, we would not pursue them. But they're harmful for us. They're harmful for our relationship to God, and they're harmful for our own selves because they enslave us. We think they bring us enjoyment. And there are all kinds of enjoyments that we experience. But such passions make us to be slaves in bondage. Notice that our own enslavement is not simply to one or two kinds of passions, but to passions and pleasures of various kinds. Did you pick on that? It's not just one or this or that. It's various kinds of passions. Some of us have been enslaved to the cravings for the approval of others, or to sexual cravings, or to drunkenness, or to greed, or to power or influence. Others have been enslaved uh, by the desires for attention or for other forms of self-centeredness. This is just a sample, uh, a sample of, of passions and desires. Paul goes on and he says, passing our days in malice and envy. Malice. Malice can refer to being um, mean-spirited or ill-willed. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, we have made choices and said things that have hurt other people. We live our days with that. We used to live our days in that. 
We live our days being envious or jealous, having cravings to possess what God has given to others but has withheld from us. Wanting to have what others have and yet God has not given them to us. Living in envy, living with jealousy. And then it goes on to say, hated by others and hating others. By our way of life, by our choices of actions or words or thoughts, we have lived in such a way that we cause others to hate us. Have you ever been there? Do you ever, have you ever lived in a way that caused other people to have grief with you or to hate you? Ask the person next to your right or left about that. We have lived in this way where we intentionally or unintentionally, we caused others to hate us. But it's not just that others responded sinfully to us by hating us. We also responded back in the same way. We returned the favor, hating others as well. This is how Paul encourages us to think about our lives before we encountered Christ. Whether you lived a moral life or a religious life, Paul wants us to remember we ourselves were this way. And remember, Paul includes himself in this. And who was Paul before he encountered Christ? He was a Pharisee. Who were the Pharisees? They were the religious conservatives of the day. They tried to live according to a, a, a set of codes that externally met God's commands. Externally, while internally they missed out. Friends, Paul includes himself in this description. He says, we ourselves, be included, were once this way. Why is it important, friends, for us as Christians to remember how we once were? Why is Paul reminding Christians how they were formerly? And why such detailed descriptions? For one, dear friends, to humble us. To humble us. Remember that part of living a godly life towards other people meant that we treat them with gentleness and humility. But we can't treat others well if we lack gentleness and humility. Part of treating non-Christians with gentleness and humility is to remember how we ourselves were formerly. Remember. Then another reason why we should remember is not only to humble us, but also to help us grow in our affection for God's salvation in our lives. Well, friends, when we, when we take time to meditate how we used to be before Christ, how we used to be before encountering Christ in our own lives, it will encourage us to, to live differently now because we are no longer what we used to be. I love the quote that John Newton once said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not 
what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Remember, consider what you were formerly as evidence of the grace of God in your life, as reason to encourage you to live in humility, as reason to encourage you to appreciate the salvation of God, the work of God's grace in your life. In light of remembering what we were before encountering Christ, in the next few verses, Paul will offer a contrast. In verse 4 in particular, after, after taking us on this journey of what we were formerly, he now in verse 4 moves on and says, but something happened. And the, the main verb, verses 4 through 7, is one sentence. Even the translators did a great job in, in keeping this sentence long and not breaking it in, in, more small, in smaller sections. One long section, one long a sentence. And the main verb of this sentence, of this long sentence, is in verse 5. He saved us. So if we were to condense verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 in uh, in a few words, but he saved us. That's what verses 4 through 7 are about. We used to be this way. Remember how you used to be? But he, God, saved us. The rest of this verse, or this, of these verses, we'll, we'll look closely at what happened when God saved us. So here's point number two in our sermon. Consider, we looked at the first one, consider how you were formerly. Second, consider the goodness and loving kindness of God. What happened when God saved us? God appeared in his goodness and loving kindness. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. When did God save us? When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, appeared. Now this appearance of the goodness and loving kindness of God certainly uh, looks back to the time when Jesus appeared on the face of uh, on the earth as through his incarnation, through his life on earth. Jesus lived a perfect life and yet he died on a cross purchasing through his death, purchasing our redemption so that through his death and through his resurrection from the dead we could be given eternal life, if only we would repent and trust in Jesus for our salvation. The goodness and loving kindness of God has appeared, first and foremost, when Jesus died for our sins. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But the appearance of God of the goodness of God and of His loving kindness for us in this verse refers to something more than just the appearance of Jesus on the earth. If we look at the rest of these verses, they are talking about God's salvation applied to our lives. How is it that God saved us 
personally, individually. This means that this appearance of the goodness and loving kindness of God refers not just to the appearance of Jesus on earth, but it refers to the time when God saved you and me, when God saves us individually, when the goodness and loving kindness of our God appeared to us. In other words, this is speaking about God's salvation applied to us. When did God save us? He saved us when His goodness and loving kindness appeared to us. This appearance of the goodness and loving kindness of God happened in different ways for each of us. For some of us, it, it happened so clearly and and you remember the day, you remember the moment, you remember the place where you were at when you were, you were overcome by the sense of the, of the goodness and loving kindness of God. And you capitulated, you surrendered your life to God because you recognized who you were. You recognized what you deserved. And you recognized what God has given you instead. You remember, but for others among us, the process of that salvation, of that conversion, happened so slowly and, and progressively that you can't look at one point, but you just you know that it happened. Friends, it's not important necessarily to know the point and day or place when it happened. The one thing is clear for all of us. God encountered us to save us. And when He encountered us to encountered us to save us, we have encountered Him in His goodness and loving kindness. Friends, His goodness and loving kindness does not contradict with the fact that God is also wrathful against sin. And He will not let our rejection of God go unpunished forever. Actually, we will only appreciate God's goodness and loving kindness when we recognize that our ignorance of God, that our rebellion against Him makes us liable for His judgment. Because God is a perfect judge. He is right to declare us guilty. And He is right and good to execute His judgment against all those who rebel against Him. And we are those who have rebelled against Him. We are therefore guilty before Him. We therefore rightly deserve His judgment. But when He appeared to us, He appeared not to execute His judgment, but to declare a word of hope, to act an action of rescue, to execute the action of, of our salvation. Our dear friends, when we come to realize that we deserve God's wrath for our sin, yet God comes to grant us rescue, a salvation, a redemption, then we recognize in deeper ways the goodness and the loving kindness of God. And that goodness and loving kindness of God should melt our hearts, should melt our hardened hearts, it's not simply that God gives us what we do not deserve. His goodness and loving kindness is deeper than that. God gives us 
the opposite of what we deserve. Our sin and our rebellion deserve God's wrath as a just penalty for rebelling against God. But instead, instead of appearing to us in His wrath, God appears to us in His goodness and loving kindness. And He rescued us at the cost of the death of His own Son. My dear friend, have you experienced this manifestation of the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior? Some people see the goodness and loving kindness of God simply because they see how good God has been to them in giving them good health or giving them provisions or giving them opportunities or protecting them from physical danger. And it's certainly true that such experiences are a manifestation of the goodness of God towards us. He gives rain over the good and over the evil. God can show goodness in some physical way towards us even while we were sinners. But if, friends, if that is all that we see of the goodness and loving kindness of God, you have seen a very, very small picture of it. Because the greatest picture of the goodness and loving kindness of God is seen in the fact that He has given His only Son for our redemption. He has given His only Son to take the punishment that we deserved so that through Him, God can appear to us to save us. There are some people who hear the good news of this gospel and waver and consider whether it's worth responding to Christ. Oh, my friend, if you're wondering if it's worth responding to Christ by repenting of your sin, trusting in Jesus instead, turning away from your old life and turning to God, you wonder, is this is this decision worth it? Consider this, my dear friend. Consider that the one who is calling you to respond to Him, to trust in Jesus for your salvation, the one who is calling you to surrender your life to Him is the one who has given His only begotten Son for you. If He has not withheld Christ from you, he will not withheld, withhold anything good for you, for your eternal salvation. Trust in Him. Respond to Him. See His goodness and loving kindness. Consider what you were formerly. Consider the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. And thirdly, as we look at this salvation closely, consider the basis of our salvation. Consider the basis of our salvation. On what basis does God save us? And this question is not just generally on what, on what basis does God serve people, save people, but on what basis does God save us? One, as we look at this question, this is what Paul explains in verse 5 by first giving a negative denial or a negative answer, a denial, and like by giving a positive answer or an affirmation. He actually puts this right there at the beginning of verse 5. He says, not because of works done by us in righteousness. When God applies His salvation to us, when, when, when that salvation becomes ours, 
the basis on which it becomes ours is not because of works done by us in righteousness. Friends, let me unpack this. It's not because God saw our own potential. And he said, look, this guy is worth my investment in him. It's not because God saw our initiative to live a good life. And, he, and God saw, look, he, he's willing. He's willing to do all that he can do. He, he's coming halfway. Let me do the rest. Oh, friends, it is not that way. It's not because God saw in us a commitment to live in righteousness. God's salvation is given to us not because we decide to change or because we would decide to, to start living a different life. It's true that Christians, once they have been saved by God, they start living a new life because God implants in us new desires. We start making new changes of lifestyle, of, of ways of living. But none of these things are the basis for which God saves us. Instead, look at the rest of verse 5. Instead, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Mercy. Oh, friends, I wonder if you considered carefully that it's not because we were worthy applicants for His salvation that we got accepted or granted His salvation. It's not because God saw ahead of time the good works we will do and said, oh my goodness, look at that guy. He will do so many good things for me. I will choose him. It's not because God said, oh, he will make so many good decisions for me. I will save him. God also did not say, this gal started cleaning up her life. She's changing. She's serious about getting saved. I will save her. Oh, friends, it does not work that way. God saves us not because of our background, not because of our upbringing, not because of our morality, not even because of our decision to start a new life. Quite the opposite in His sight. When God came to save us, we were all, all foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to passions and pleasures of various kinds. No merit of ours is ever computed in God's decision to save us. God saves us entirely on the basis of His mercy. I love how 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. And when was that purpose and grace established? Or He gave us that purpose and grace in Christ, in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Paul hammers home um, this point over and over um, that the mercy of God is at the basis of our, of our salvation. Imagine, dear friends, if you were, uh, if you were a student and, and, and apply to, to graduate work and you have a number of choices you want to go to apply to and, and uh, you, you, you apply to the one school that is absolutely the best in the nation, and, and you, you think, well, I, I think I might have a chance, a very small chance, 
because look, I've, I've had really good grades. I've been a, in a great school. I, I'm, I'm doing really well. I think I may have a good chance. I'm going to apply. And uh, you do the, all the paperwork, and you apply, and you wait anxiously here if you, if you, what, what you'll hear back from that one greatest school that you applied. A few months later, you open the mail, and you get a letter from the school, and uh, you open it up. Your, your blood is really high at this point. You wonder what will be in that letter. And uh, the first word, you, your, your eyes glance and, and sort of arrest on the page is the word congratulations. And, and you don't need to read the rest of the letter because you know what the rest of the letter will be like. But then you start reading the rest of the letter and something weird, and from this point forward, I'm making it up. Something weird would be written in that letter. And there would be a paragraph that would say, you have been accepted into this program in a spot called Mercy. It's the one spot we give only to one applicant every year who does not qualify to get accepted. Actually, he's the least qualified among all the applicants. You have been given that spot. Congratulations, you're accepted into the program. Now, in that moment, your pride could just be crushed. And I'm like, could you guys just not have told me that? I would be such a happy, don't ruin my dream. Don't ruin my own impression of, of my own qualifications that I got in based on what I deserved, I qualified. Now, others might say, well, listen, it doesn't matter. I got in. It doesn't matter how I got in. I, bottom line is, I got in. I got in in the, in the program of my dream. Now, friends, some people, when it comes to salvation, might think in this way as well. It doesn't matter how you get in. It's just get in. Well, no, the Bible does make very clear to us that the only way we can get in, all the spots awarded by God in his salvation are mercy spots. All of them. There's not one spot granted based on our merit. There's not one spot granted to us based on our GPA, our school records, our, our upbringing, our IQ, none of it. It is all granted because of God's mercy. Friends, when we recognize this point that, the, that God's salvation is given to us, is applied to us out of God's mercy, if we don't get that, we, we will not understand God's salvation. As a matter of fact, we will miss to understand what it's truly about. And what, what difference this makes when we understand that God's salvation is based on God's mercy, not upon our works, not upon our qualifications for it. It does fourth, at least four things. First of all, it humbles us. God saves us not because he sees something good in us. It's not a man-centered, man-glorifying salvation. It's God's choice to save us purely out of his desire to extend mercy. It also increases our gratitude when we recognize that it's not our qualification, but purely God's mercy. It means we bring nothing to the table. We are eternally indebted, so to speak, to God, because this was not a halfway deal. 
God, I gave some, you gave some. What a great deal we have. Let's just keep it that way. No, it is all God's mercy. Therefore, we are in eternally indebted in gratitude towards God. Thirdly, it frees, when we recognize that it's totally out of God's mercy that we are saved, it frees us to come to Christ now. For those of you who are still outside of Christ, you don't need to wait until you are better to come to Jesus. You don't need to try to clean up your record before you come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and He will clean up your record. The only way for you to, to have your record cleansed is to come to Christ. And fourthly, when we recognize that mercy is the basis of God's salvation to us, it glorifies God's sovereignty in our salvation. I love it how Paul in Romans 9, 10, 11, when he speaks about the doctrine of God's election as happening before the ages began and the basis of that election, Paul makes it clear that the reason why God elects is not on the basis of what he knows beforehand what we will choose. No. It is purely on the basis of his mercy. And one of the greatest passages in, in, in Romans 9, 10, 11 is this declaration that God gave to Moses. He said, for he says to Moses, God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. When we understand that mercy is the basis on which God saves us, it glorifies God's sovereignty in our salvation. Friends, so far this morning, we have considered three things about our salvation. We'll look at three more next week, Lord willing. But the three things we have considered this morning, we considered what we were formerly, our state of sin, what God saved us out of. He saved us out of our foolishness. He saved us out of our disobedience. He saved us out of our deceptive ways. He saved us out of our enslavement and desires to pleasure. He saved us out of malice and envy and hatred. We also considered how God, when He saved us, He manifested Himself to us in His goodness and loving kindness. And thirdly, we considered the basis of our salvation is not our actions, not even our decisions. It's God's mercy. Friends, let's respond to God with gratitude. God's salvation given to us in Christ Jesus. It is because of His mercy. It is because of what Jesus has done for us that God now is able to apply that salvation in mercy to us. I love the way the, the last song we have sung said, But Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. On that foundation, dear friends, we can come to Jesus. And on that promise of mercy, we can extend the invitation of the gospel to sinners to come to the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, you have been merciful to us. You have shown us your mercy. And you have not just shown us your mercy, you have extended it to us by applying your salvation to our own hearts. 
Father, we pray that you would continue to apply your salvation to the hearts of those who are still in sin, to the hearts of those who are still without Christ. May they come to you. May you save them. May you rescue them out of their own bondage. Father, we pray that your salvation would be gloriously manifested among us and your mercy and grace, your goodness and loving kindness would be displayed powerfully in us and through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.